0: Thus far we've offered anecdotal insight as to Bedford Forrest's humble origins, his makeup and his antebellum experiences. We've detailed his entrance into the great conflict and his meteoric rise to command, his fights at Fort Donelson, Shiloh, Fallen Timbers, and his dogged, relentless pursuit of Colonel Abel Strait's Union command. Now, We'll delve into the remainder of his Civil War career and post-war life, both periods laced with, and no surprise here, controversy. And so, we pick up the fiery story that is Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Wizard of the Saddle. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught, numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. At about 11 a.m. on the second day of the bloody engagement at Chickamauga, The federal line broke and pursuit began. At 4 a.m. of September the 21st, 1863, Forrest and about 400 continued to give chase as the Federal Army of the Cumberland retreated north to Chattanooga. As Forrest men neared Rossville, Georgia, the Confederate general ordered a charge on the Union rear guard and in doing so received their volley. His horse took a bullet through its neck, which severed a major artery. Forrest, lost in the moment and intent on driving his charge home, plunged his index finger into the horse's wound to stem the spurting of blood. After the Federals retired from the field, he dismounted, removed his finger from the horse's wound, and the animal dropped dead. Despite his relentless pursuit, Little, if any, Confederate infantry under Braxton Bragg participated, and so, Union Major General William Rosecrans' broken army had the opportunity to escape and dig in at Chattanooga. By doing so, the Confederate victory at Chickamauga appeared fruitless, and Forrest was livid about it. In his opinion and others, Bragg had missed a golden opportunity. Indeed, what pursuit Bragg did order and mount did not begin until a little after 2 p.m. on the 21st, some 10 hours after Forrest's. The Tennessean asked contemptuously of Bragg, what does he fight battles for? As Bragg's inactivity continued on Thursday, September the 24th, Forrest received permission to withdraw 10 miles from Chattanooga to feed and rest his men and horses. It was a brief respite for on the 25th, he led a raid to the northeast of Chattanooga. After this foray, Bragg commented bitterly that the raid was useless, robbed him of cavalry presence, and used the opportunity to say that Forrest was ignorant and did not know anything of cooperation. He is nothing more than a good raider. Perhaps that influenced the decision made by the commander of the Confederate Army of Tennessee. A few days later, Forrest received orders to send most of his troops to Major General Joseph Wheeler for another Confederate raid. Forrest protested and was told that, upon its conclusion, his troopers would be returned. Having little to do for the first time in 18 months, Forrest took a 10-day leave to LaGrange, Georgia, where he visited his wife. While away, Bragg took another stab at Forrest. On Saturday, October the 3rd, Bragg placed Forrest under Wheeler, who was 15 years his junior. And after an earlier affront, Forrest had sworn he would never serve under again. When the wizard learned of the change, he left his wife in LaGrange and accompanied by a surgeon. His surgeon, Dr. J.B. Cowan, proceeded to Braxton Bragg's headquarters on Missionary Ridge in Chattanooga. Forrest planned to resign his commission. As the two rode up, the tone was set when Forrest ignored the sentry's salute outside Bragg's tent. He dismounted and stormed in unannounced. Bragg rose and extended his hand. It was refused. Then, like it was a pistol, Forrest took the index finger of his left hand, aimed it squarely in front of Bragg's face, and addressed him with absolute frank, brutal, unadulterated insubordination. Bragg sank back into his chair, and with Forrest's finger jabbing in his face, Braxton Bragg suffered this verbal assault. I am not here to pass civilities or compliments with you, but on other business. You commenced your cowardly and contemptible persecution of me soon after the Battle of Shiloh, and you have kept it up ever since. You did it because I reported to Richmond facts, while you reported damned lies. You robbed me of my command in Kentucky and gave in to one of your favorites, men that I armed and equipped from the enemies of your country. In a spirit of revenge and spite, because I would not fawn upon you as others did, you drove me into... Western Tennessee in the winter of 1862 with a second brigade I had organized with improper arms and without sufficient ammunition, although I had made repeated applications for the same. You did it to ruin me and my career. While in spite of all this, I returned with my command well equipped by captures, you began again your work of spite and persecution and have kept it up And now this second brigade, organized and equipped without thanks to you or the government, a brigade which has won a reputation for successful fighting, second to none in the army, taking advantage of your position as the commanding general in order to humiliate me, you have taken these brave men from me. I have stood your meanness as long as I intend to. You have played the part of a damned scoundrel, and you are a coward, and if you were any part of a man, I would slap your jaws and force you to resent it. You may as well not issue any more orders to me, for I will not obey them, and I will hold you personally responsible for any further indignities you endeavor to inflict upon me. You have threatened to arrest me for not obeying your orders promptly. I dare you to do it. And I say to you that if you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be at the peril of your life. When he finished the tirade, Forrest spun on his hill, left the tent, and the dumbfounded Braxton Bragg. Outside, an astounded Dr. Cowan said simply, Well, now you are in for it. To which Forrest snapped, No, he'll never say a word about it. He'll be the last man to mention it. And mark my word, he'll take no action in the matter. I will ask to be relieved and transferred to a different field, and he will not oppose it. Bedford Forrest knew his man. On Friday, December the 4th, 1863, not only was he transferred, but promoted to Major General. 1864 found him sparring with another enemy. Major General William T. Sherman, and hoping to disrupt Sherman's raid to the interior of Mississippi, to Meridian. 33-year-old Brigadier General William S. Smith and his cavalry were to assist the Federal Drive. The resulting encounter between Forrest and Smith's forces on Monday, February the 22nd, made the war personal for the Confederate cavalrymen. After its frustrating attempt to join Sherman's campaign, Smith's Union force of just over six thousand were in the process of retiring toward Memphis when right early that morning, Forrest's cavalry, numbering about twenty five hundred, attacked near Okolona, Mississippi. Numbers were again irrelevant. However, one was. Forrest's youngest and favorite brother, Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Forrest was about 50 yards from the federal position when he was shot through the throat and killed. His older brother rushed to him, raised him from the ground, called his name several times. Then he went berserk. Forrest ordered attacks to simultaneously hit Smith's front and flank and personally led the frontal assault. It was a charge of some 60 against 500. During the melee, three bullets slammed into his saddle. His horse was hit five times and went down. He commandeered another horse, and after only 150 yards, it too was killed. In his rage, fueled by vengeance, Forrest personally killed three. Yet sometime later, after the Federals had been forced from the field, the same man, who earlier was a seething volcano, came upon a makeshift Union Field Hospital. There, he found a young man in blue who was in the process of having his leg amputated, but the surgeon attending to him had fled. The young man, abandoned, with amputation saw still in the bone. Forrest dismounted, applied chloroform to the soldier, and helped his surgeon, Dr. Cowan, complete the procedure. At Oklahoma, Smith took 388 casualties. Forrest suffered 188, but was successful in driving Smith's force all the way back to Union-held Memphis. When April arrived, Forrest opted to lead a raid into western Tennessee and Kentucky. In part, he looked forward to rounding up Confederate deserters and those who had managed to avoid Confederate service. On the 12th, the third anniversary of the beginning of the war, his force struck Fort Pillow on the Mississippi River. The repercussions of what took place there still reverberate. The fort sat on a high bluff of 300 feet and overlooked the eastern bank of the river. Originally, a Confederate installation, it was designed to defend Memphis, Abandoned in 1862, it was now in Union hands and under the command of Major Lionel F. Booth. He had some 580 federal troops, 292 of them black. Many were former slaves. Many of the whites were Tennessee Unionists, and some were reputed to have deserted from Forrest's own command. Though protected by three distinct lines of earthworks, Forrest moved in with dismounted cavalrymen, numbering around 1,500. Federal resistance was stubborn, but eventually Confederate sharpshooters in overwhelming numbers began to force the issue. The prolonged struggle, six hours old, was all the more remarkable since around 9 a.m. Major Booth was shot dead by a Confederate sharpshooter and Major William F. Bradford took command. At 3.30 p.m., Forrest called for a truce, and true to customary form, sent the usual note and message into the fort. Unaware of Booth's death, it was still addressed to him and read, Major, the conduct of the officers and men garrisoning Fort Pillow has been such as to entitle them to being treated as prisoners of war. I demand the unconditional surrender of this garrison, promising you that you shall be treated as prisoners of war. My men have received a fresh supply of ammunition, and from their present position can easily assault and capture the fort. Should my demand be refused, I cannot be responsible for the fate of your command, respectfully. Now in command, Bradford wanted an hour to deliberate. But when Forrest saw smoke on the Mississippi and sensed federal gunboats were on the way, one hour was reduced to 20 minutes. Then came the Union response. I will not surrender. With Forrest, there are not many. We must take them. Confederates from all points stormed the fort and defenders broke. Watching Confederates pour in at several points, Major Bradford gave the command, "'Boys, save your lives!' White and black soldiers ran and were cut down. Several raced out of the fort and into the river, where they were shot or drowned. It was a slaughter. Anywhere from 277 to 297 of the fort's 580 died of mortal wounds." some 47 to 49 percent. 35 percent of all white soldiers were killed. 66 percent of all blacks. Of 1,500 Confederates, it was reported 14 were killed and 86 wounded. Still, to this day, the point of controversy the killing and wounding of Union soldiers after they had struck their colors. From accounts, it appears Forrest was not near those that tried to surrender and were cut down. And there were accounts of some Confederates who actually tried to protect those captured from other Confederates. Existing records show that Forrest had not marked this fort for annihilation. Whether he willingly ordered or allowed no quarter, well, it's lost to history. However, we can say this. At Fort Pillow, Forrest was in command, and he did something that no commanding general in any battle, in any war, in any century could ever do. He lost control of his men. Any defense for him is weakened by the fact That on many earlier occasions, he had made clear his sheer hate of Tennessee Unionists and blacks under arms. In all likelihood, he probably did not order the slaughter. But then again, he did little to stem the violence. The news of the massacre at Fort Pillow blew up in the north. And being an election year, here was an incident that served as a political lightning rod. The controversy was so great, a Congressional investigation was launched. The Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War heard and collected evidence of numerous atrocities, including the killing of many of the garrison after surrender. Again, we know this. Confederate military and civil authorities hotly denied the charges. And yes, there are those who maintain that with the storming of the fort, there was much confusion outrage and unnecessary acts of violence but these sources and their testimonies maintain that the majority of the casualties were incurred as a result of the legitimate though hardly humane warfare like most controversies the truth is probably somewhere in the middle we also know this neither the lincoln administration nor William T. Sherman in the Western Theater ever issued any reaction or official response. Fort Pilla most definitely dominated the news for some time, but the waves of a war still hotly contested washed over the events of April the 12th. At that time of the war, 1864, there was great anticipation about Union command changes, both nationally and in the West, With Grant now in overall command and based in the East, Union Command for the Western Theater was assigned to William T. Sherman. And on Saturday, May the 7th, 1864, he began his march on Atlanta and most certainly did not want complications from Forrest raiding his supply and communication lines, which ran back through Chattanooga to Nashville. As Sherman put it, That devil Forrest must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the national treasury. There will never be peace in Tennessee till Forrest is dead. And so, from June to November of 1864, Sherman ordered 4,800 infantry, 3,000 cavalry, and 18 guns under Brigadier General Samuel D. Sturgis to take Bedford Forrest out. The Pennsylvanian, Sturgis, relished his assignment. In fact, once when Forrest avoided a major fight with him, Sturgis wrote Sherman the following, I regret very much that I could not have the pleasure of bringing you his hair, but he is too great a plunderer to fight anything like an equal force. That equal force remark would come back to haunt him on Friday, June the 10th, 1864, at a place just south of Corinth, Mississippi, at Bryce's Crossroads. That day, Forrest realized he was about to be attacked by Sturgis' largest force, but he turned the tables. Though outnumbered 3,500 to 8,000, he attacked first, putting into practice what he believed. One man in motion was worth two standing. So, in perhaps his most famous encounter, he held up a superior force and coordinated a Confederate frontal attack and attacks on both flanks, shouting, Hit him on the end! His force late in the day drove Sturgis back where they were bottlenecked by a bridge over Tishomingo Creek. Retreat there became a rout. Confederate pursuit was relentless and continued for some 50 miles, almost back to the city of Memphis itself. Sturgis suffered 223 killed, 394 wounded, 1,623 missing, 30% of his force. The Pennsylvanian also lost 18 guns, 250 wagons and ambulances, 5,000 stands of arms, 500,000 rounds of ammunition, and all his baggage and supplies. Forrest's losses were 96 killed, 396 wounded, 14 percent of his force. It was a crowning achievement for dismounted cavalry. Sturgis had wanted to send Sherman Forrest's hair. Now he spouted, For God's sakes, if Mr. Forrest will let me alone, I will let him alone. Yet the war was a long way from being over for both Sturgis and Forrest. In late June, 11,000 infantry, 3,000 cavalry, and 20 guns were placed under the command of Union Major General Andrew Jackson Smith. And quite simply, he had one priority, hunt down Nathan Bedford Forrest and destroy his force. Smith brought Confederate Lieutenant General Stephen D. Lee and Forrest to a fight near Tupelo, Mississippi on Thursday, July 14th. It was a fight that resulted in a Union victory, but did not destroy Forrest's force. Further, the victory was compromised in a larger degree, for when Smith's force withdrew to Memphis, Forrest was once again free to roam. As Forrest would have put it, Smith didn't keep up the skier. Similar to Robert E. Lee in the East, when left alone, Forrest seized the initiative and planned a daring raid, one that required 2,000 men. Their objective was Union-held Memphis itself. Early morning, Sunday, August 21st, 1864, Forrest and his men stormed into his home city, which had been held by federal forces since June of 1862. Though now a federal bastion, Forrest and his men held the town for the better part of the day. The raid frustrated, demoralized, and embarrassed the North. In the dash, Forrest and his men almost captured two federal generals before choosing to withdraw. Sherman was exasperated with Forrest, but at least in his mind, Forrest's raids were in northern Mississippi and western Tennessee, and not in eastern Tennessee and Georgia to bother him. Still, though, Forrest was a thorn in his side, and he would continue to irritate. On September the 23rd and 24th, Forrest raided and captured a 600-man garrison near Athens on the border of Tennessee and Alabama. He then moved back to western Tennessee where one raid included the firing from land on federal gunboat and barge traffic up and down the Mississippi. In October and November of 64, Forrest claimed he had destroyed four gunboats, 14 transports, 20 barges, 26 guns, $6.7 million of damage in stores, and captured 150 men. Despite the success, in the greater part and greater picture, the Confederacy was unraveling. Raids were not major battles. And major battles dictated not only military policy, but political. With Atlanta's fall in September, Abraham Lincoln essentially was elected to a second term. By then, Lee was pinned down before Petersburg, Virginia. And on the 16th of November, Sherman began his march across Georgia from Atlanta to Savannah. In one of the last desperate acts of the Confederacy in the Western Theater, Forrest joined Confederate General John Bell Hood and his Army of Tennessee, and was with him November the 30th for the horrific slaughter that was the Battle of Franklin. There, Forrest tried to talk Hood out of a frontal attack that created 6,252 Confederate casualties, killed six Confederate generals wounded six more. Forrest will also be at the Confederate disaster at the December 1864 Battle of Nashville. In the pathetic retreat south from Major General George Thomas's Federal Forces, Forrest kept up an effective rear guard defense all the way back to Alabama, fighting often carried out in sleet and rain a battle at Nashville that, for all practical purposes, all but destroyed that Confederate army. For his untiring service, he was promoted to Lieutenant General, February the 28th, 1865, and given command over all Confederate cavalry in Alabama, Mississippi, and eastern Louisiana. But by then, it was too little and too late. Federal knockout punches came from every point of the compass. Personally for Forrest, blows were landed by Union Brigadier General James Harrison Wilson, who commanded some fourteen thousand Federal cavalrymen, the largest mounted force ever assembled on the continent. To face them, Forrest had about two thousand, and far too many of them old men and boys and they were scattered across northern Alabama. It was simple arithmetic. Each day, Forrest fell back about 24 or 25 miles. Ever the fighter, he tried to bring in some 7,000 reinforcements, but Wilson effectively blocked them. The end came Sunday, April 2, 1865, the same day as the evacuation of Richmond and the capture of Petersburg. Selma, Alabama fell and Wilson captured some 2,700 Confederate prisoners. Forrest's force was broken, defeated. Only a few of his men and officers escaped, one of them, Forrest himself. During his escape northward, he killed his 30th victim. That day, a Sunday, was significant for the Wizard of the Saddle, for Selma marked his only true failure of the American Civil War. A little over a month later at Citronelle, Alabama, some 40 miles north of Mobile, he was surrendered. It was on Thursday, May the 4th, when Confederate General Richard Taylor, the last major Confederate officer to stack arms, surrendered the Confederate Department of Alabama, Mississippi, and East Louisiana. Personally, Forrest gave himself up that same day in Meridian, Mississippi. He did so despite the efforts of the Confederate governors of Tennessee and Mississippi, who wanted him and others to fall back to Texas, where they would launch guerrilla tactics and warfare. At 44 years of age, he was worn down and out. And as he put it, Men, you may all do as you damn please, but I'm going home. His farewell to his troops read, Men, We have surrendered we have made our last fight i came here tonight to meet the federal general who will go with me tomorrow to gainesville alabama to be paroled and to lay down our arms men you've been good soldiers a man who has been a good soldier can be a good citizen i shall go back to my house upon the mississippi river there to begin life anew and to you good old confederates i want to say that the latch string of Bedford Forest will always be on the outside of the door. Later, he reflected, I went into the Army worth a million and a half dollars and came out a beggar. By April 1866, he sharecropped the very land he owned a year before. He tried growing cotton, selling insurance, and railroading with the Selma, Marion, and Memphis. But each venture bankrupt what little he had. Yes, he had became the first grand wizard of the KKK, and he helped to hamstring the Union and Loyal Leagues and Freedmen's Bureau. And yes, when he believed the organization resorted to a degree of violence, even he could not justify or condone he ordered the moderation and dissolution of the organization, yet because he was the forest of Fort Pillar and a prominent official in the KKK. On the 27th of June, 1871, some two and a half years after he issued a call for cleansemen to destroy their regalia and curtail their activities, he was called before a joint congressional committee that was investigating the organization. Before them, he told the truth, but admittedly, it was not the whole truth. He dodged several questions. Upon his return to Memphis, he threw himself into his railroad enterprise. Many may be surprised that in the winter of his life, he spoke out against racial discrimination and even in the last two years of his life, called for black social and political advancement. But to history, and particularly today, the damage was and is done. Regardless of his military prowess, it cannot be refuted. Bedford Forrest was indeed a slave owner and traitor. It was his men that attacked and cut down Men in Blue at Fort Pillow. And yes, he was a prominent leader in a secret organization whose intent was to intimidate and inflict violence on white Tennessee Unionist and African American freedmen. For him, the final campaign, that as in the campaign of his life itself, ended the 29th of October, 1877. After four major wounds and numerous minor, we believe, that most likely, he died of complications from diabetes. The end came in Memphis, a Monday. Another Memphian at the time came by during the afternoon to pay his respects to the sinking former Confederate officer. But by then, the Calverman had slipped so low that he seemed hardly able to recognize the visitor. And that visitor was the past president of a doomed nation and commander-in-chief of its War for Independence, Jefferson Davis. Another that in the north was also vilified. Davis departed, and then a friend, associate Minor Merriweather, returned to maintain the death watch. It was around 7 p.m. when he heard the general's last coherent words. Unlike supposed last words that are often incorrectly, I might add, attributed to Lee, Jackson, and others of that period, Forrest's last words did not convey some fevered memory from some distant battlefield. There was no account or vision from the escape from Fort Donaldson or the chaos of Shiloh, the hounding of Abel Strait, the maddened storming of Fort Pillow, or the exhilaration of victory at Bryce's crossroads. His last words were a call to help him in something that was foreign to him, defeat, in this case, in his battle for life itself. True to character, his last words were a command. Call my wife. He was only 56. He was buried in his Confederate uniform, and the funeral procession to the church was nearly two miles long. Some 20,000 lined the streets or followed the casket. Inside the Court Street Cumberland Presbyterian Church, there were thousands, and according to the Memphis Appeal, both white and black were in attendance. One pallbearer was Jefferson Davis. When the news of his passing fanned out from Memphis, as you might expect, there was adulation in the South, and up North, attacks, some quite vicious. The New York Times, for example, and as might be expected, railed against him, notoriously bloodthirsty and revengeful. Unlike Lee, who had been an example of gallant soldiers and dignified gentlemen from refined Virginia, Forrest was typical of the reckless, ruffianism, and cutthroat daring of the southwest crude, rude border country. It is true. Throughout his life, he never shed his frontier image, character, independence, or justice. In his world, honor, violence, control, and passion were all elements of his rearing. That helped and hurt him. Those characteristics applied particularly in his need for absolute control and his occasional impetuousness. His powerful need for independence, without question, limited his military effectiveness as a soldier cooperating with others. Yet during the war, his command fought 50 battles, inflicted 16,000 casualties, captured or destroyed 67 artillery pieces, 38 vessels of various types, 300 wagons, 40 blockhouses, 36 railroad bridges, 200 miles of railroad, and all at a cost to the United States government of some $15 million. His cost? 2,200 killed, wounded, or captured. When asked who was the greatest soldier the war produced... Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston quickly answered, Forrest, who had he had the advantage of a thorough military education and training, would have been the great central figure of the Civil War. Some say the greatest compliment comes from those who in life were your enemies. Major General William T. Sherman said simply, Nathan Bedford Forrest was the most remarkable man the war produced. In 1905, the city of Memphis unveiled an equestrian statue of him. The general and his wife, Mary Ann, who passed some 15 years after he, were buried at its base. Some 75 years later, the Memphis Chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality made it clear that they wanted the statue removed. Nine years after that, the Memphis branch of the NAACP joined the call. They wanted the statue and bodies removed and the park renamed. The organization's executive secretary was quoted, The presence of this park is a daily slap in the face to blacks throughout the city, and we intend to see that it's removed. Let the historians and all those who are so fond of the general take him And do what they want with him. Amidst the turmoil, fellow Memphian Shelby Foote, famous for his trilogy of the American Civil War, defended him, remarking that Forrest wasn't evil incarnate, but did admit that, yes, he certainly wasn't the best representative of Southern virtue. In Foote's mind, he was quite simply a man of his times, caught in the midst of unprecedented times. Foote, another man of his times, and I can respectfully say that, for I had the honor of lecturing with him on two occasions, believed that Forrest should be taken in the context of a man leading other men during a time of tumultuous civil war, shaped by forces over which he ultimately had no control. Like a kindred soul, Andrew Jackson The two men have been vilified for their sadistic racial bigotry. If allowed to return and testify, both would probably say that they were desperately trying to keep their world as they knew it at that time from disintegrating. That, however, cannot excuse their excesses. For the lightning rod that is Nathan Bedford Forrest The knee-jerk-like responses and repercussions for his actions are still very much with us. In June of 2013, the Memphis City Council voted to rename Forest Park to Health Sciences Park. Elsewhere, many schools in Florida and Tennessee that had been named for him have changed their names or are under fire to do so. In November of 2020, and referencing again the Memphis Commercial Appeal, it had been decided that the general and his wife were to be reinterred and the equestrian statue re-erected at the privately owned National Confederate Museum at Elm Springs in Columbia, Tennessee. It will be a homecoming of sorts, for Forrest's birthplace was Chapel Hill, Tennessee, which is less than 30 miles east of Columbia. And interestingly, Pulaski, the KKK's birthplace, is about 35 minutes south of Columbia. The privately owned site is owned by the Sons of Confederate Veterans. When asked, the organization's attorney, Edward Phillips, responded this way. With some historical figures, there are things to be proud of. General Forrest was a brilliant cavalryman and tactician, for example. And then he added, There are some things that cause us to reflect on how we've changed for the better. Just because General Forrest was a controversial historical figure does not mean we should disrespect his final burial site. I am certain there are many who disagree with the attorney. And even as I record this podcast... Debate and controversy reign in the volunteer state over what to do with the bust of Forrest that for years sat on the second floor of the Tennessee State Capitol. As Kennesaw State University professor and director of the Center for the Civil War era, Brian Steele Wills penned in his 1998 biography entitled The Confederacy's Greatest Cavalryman*. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Wills wrote, Perhaps it is only fitting that Forrest continues to generate controversy, for he certainly did nothing to avoid it while he lived. Please allow me to suggest several works that greatly aided me in preparation for this presentation. Above and beyond the prose and historical data, I think you'll find interesting the tone and perspective expressed in the biographical works on Forrest that span the course of almost 40 years of writing. First, That Devil Forrest, Life of Nathan Bedford Forrest by John Allen Wyeth, which was published in 1959. Second, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a biography by historian and newspaper columnist Jack Hurst, whose work was published in 1993. And as alluded to earlier, the Confederacy's greatest cavalryman, Nathan Bedford Forrest, by Brian Steele Wills, whose biography was published in 1998 by the University Press of Kansas. Reactions to Nathan Bedford Forrest continue to run deep. For our next episode, another subject who likewise triggers reaction that ranges from hero and martyr to devil incarnate. Next time we gather, we'll tell the story of the man who ensured there would be civil war. John Brown. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.